Please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. Students, so glad that you are back. Man, as Zach said, you just bring so much life and energy back to this church. We love having you here. Love having you worship with us. It's wonderful. I want to show you a, a picture to begin with this morning. This is, uh, this is my home. This is where I grew up uh, when I was a kid, 108 Tudor Road in, uh, in Ithaca, New York. And um, I was uh, very familiar with the roof of this house because I, I would play outside, right? And as I was playing outside, things would just uh, generally land on the roof. They would just, you know, accumulate on the roof, uh, you know, Frisbees and lawn darts, which that's a great toy. Sad they outlawed that, you know, so there'd be lawn darts or even some hockey pucks that I have no idea how the hockey pucks got up there. But I remember when I was about 10 years old, enough stuff had accumulated on the roof that my dad said, hey, it's, it's time to, to get everything off of the roof. And so we went on the back porch and he lifted me up and he put me on the roof and he said, just walk around and throw everything down. And it was in that moment that I first discovered that I was afraid of heights. <laughs> but man, I just, I froze. I locked up and I just got as low as I possibly could, right? And just spread out. And I could not move. You know, I, was, I was frozen. The fear gripped me that deeply. Have you ever been afraid? I mean, genuinely afraid. And not, I don't mean even, you know, trivial things, so to speak, like, fear of heights or getting stung by a bug or something like that. You know, not, not the trivial things, but, but deep fears. You know, fear of, of disease, fear of pain, uh, fear of death, fear of the future. What will things be like in our country? Uh, not just for us, but for our, our children and our children's children. Will they be able to provide for their families and find work? Will they be able to worship freely? Will they be persecuted or rejected? A fear of loneliness. If you truly decide that you want to walk with Jesus for a lifetime, does that mean you might be single? Does that mean you might be rejected by family and friends? Deep fears. Fears that that can often even paralyze us. You know you're not alone. Uh, The Bible is actually filled with uh, really fearful followers of God. Uh, Remember Moses was fearful. He was fearful first of Pharaoh. And then he was fearful of God. And what God called him to do, he didn't really want the assignment that God handed to him. Uh, Jeremiah was fearful. He's told to go to prophesy uh, to the nation of Israel, his own people, and he knew that in doing so, he would suffer physically. He would be rejected by his own people. And he was fearful. And he said, God, I'm too young. I, I don't want that job. I'm too young for the task. Esther was fearful. God had placed her in a unique position that she could be the one to step in and potentially rescue her people from annihilation, but she was fearful of the king. She was fearful for her own life. Disciples were fearful. They were fearful of standing up and saying, yeah, Jesus, we believe he's the Messiah. He's ours. And Timothy was fearful. This semester we're going to study Paul's second letter to Timothy, and Timothy's greatest battle in life was was fear. Was, was pulling back from God's calling. And so what we want to look at this morning, what we're going to look at really this semester, is how do we move forward in faith and conquer fear? Uh, fear is the enemy of faith, but God's spirit is more powerful. How do, how do we tap into the spirit of God so that we move forward rather than pulling back, but we press on into God's calling to fulfill God's calling in our lives? I want you to begin this process with me this morning Beginning of the book of 2 Timothy, we're going to read the first few verses. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. A little bit of background as we begin. This is Paul's final letter. Last letter he wrote, at least that we have recorded, he wrote it between 67 and 68 AD from a prison cell in Rome, and he expects that he will not be released. In fact, he expects that his life will end shortly. And so this is his, his final letter to his, his dearly beloved disciple, Timothy. We first meet Timothy in Acts chapter 16. Paul went on also to Derby and to Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. This is where we first meet Timothy, and we discover that he's from a mixed family. His father's Greek and apparently not a believer. His mom is Jewish and she is a believer in Jesus as the Messiah. And Timothy has already begun to develop a reputation. So apparently Paul is not the one who led him to the Lord, but Paul adopts him as a spiritual son. He has him circumcised because Paul wants him to do ministry in lots of different areas. And he wants him to be able to reach out to Gentiles, but also to Jews. That's what Paul does. And we see him... uh, taking Timothy along. So on the second and third missionary journeys, Timothy is everywhere. And periodically, Paul will stop at a place and he'll leave Timothy behind. He'll say, here's an assignment for you, Timothy. And he stuck Timothy in some really tough places. One of the places apparently he left him was the city of Corinth. With all of the chaos of Corinth, he left Timothy there. We read this in 1 Corinthians 16. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord just as I am. Therefore, let no one despise him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Paul says, I know you Corinthian believers. I know your church. Don't mess with Timothy, right? Leave him alone, right? Treat him with respect as you would treat me. Now, as Paul has moved on and he is toward the end of his life, he has left Timothy behind in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was uh, the premier city in Asia Minor. Okay? Wealthy and very well-known. Think, think New York City, right? Dominant economically, dominant culturally. There's a vibrant, growing church there, but a really hard church to work in. Timothy is a young man, and apparently they do not deeply respect his leadership. So like in Corinth, they're coming after him. They're making him feel uh, uncomfortable and, and, and unqualified to lead in their congregation. And all, in this church, there's, there's doctrine that's strange that is mixed in with the true doctrine of Jesus Christ because uh, Ephesus was a, was a hotbed of all kinds of heretical teachings, not just about Jesus, but, but magic and uh, demonic forces and all kinds of things, and things are creeping into the church. And outside of the church, people are going out and they're just spreading all kinds of gossip. And so it's a really, really, really tough place for Timothy to work, and he feels completely and utterly unqualified. He is 
fearful. He's fearful. He's called to do something for which he is apparently inadequate. And in his fear, he begins to pull back. Have you ever felt that from the Lord? That the Lord is calling you forward to take a, a risky step of faith. He's calling you forward to do something that you don't really feel qualified for. And you're tempted to say no. You're tempted to find another way around it. Have you ever felt that from God? That God is challenging, pushing you to take a, a profound step of faith. If the answer is no, that you never really have sensed that from the Lord, then I'm going to tell you right now, you're not listening. Okay? You're not listening. Because this is exactly what God does for all of his people. He puts us in places in our lives where we have only God to depend on. And if God doesn't come through for us, we will fail. And so if you're not hearing God pushing you to those places, then you're not listening. And the book of 2 Timothy is going to stir that up. It's going to be an opportunity for the Spirit to speak into your heart and your life and push you and challenge you. So listen to Paul's advice uh, to Timothy this morning. How do we move forward in faith rather than become, becoming paralyzed by fear? Paul's first exhortation is this. Remember your spiritual heritage. Remember your spiritual heritage. Look with me again, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul says, For I am mindful of the sincere, the genuine faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you, as well. Timothy came from a rich spiritual heritage. You know that, that old saying, if you see a, a turtle sitting on a fence post, he had help getting there, right? Paul says, you had help getting here, Timothy. You had a grandmother who was a believer, rich in her faith. You had a mother who was a believer, rich in her faith. You have me, Timothy. Paul starts the letter like this, Timothy, my beloved son, First Timothy starts like this. Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy, I long to see you. In fact, I long to see you because when you left, you were in tears and now I am in tears and I want to be filled with joy. Paul had invested deeply in Timothy's life. Paul says, you have this rich heritage from your family. You have this rich heritage from me. And then Paul goes on to say, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. Timothy, you have inherited all of the heritage that I bring into our relationship. Timothy, you're not alone in your faith. Now, some of you can probably say to yourselves, you know, I get that. I, I completely understand what Paul's talking about here because I've come from this rich heritage of faith. My, my parents are believers. My grandparents are believers. You know, we trace our family all the way back to Martin Luther, right? We are, you know, we're this rich stock of Christian faith. And others of you are saying, you know, I, that doesn't really make sense for me so much Maybe you're the first Christian in your family. Maybe even to this day, you're the only Christian in your family. You say, I don't, I don't have that spiritual heritage. I want to tell you, you actually you do. Yeah, you do. Because the moment that you trust Christ, you inherit the heritage of the body of Christ. Okay, the rich heritage that goes back generation by generation by generation. In fact, you have been called into the family of God. If you look at the, the metaphors for the people of God throughout Scripture, the most powerful metaphor is this. We are family. Okay? We are family. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The Apostle Paul wrote, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. God is our Father. Christ is our brother. 
We are brothers and sisters. And what the work of Christ is, is he is going out and he's making a family for God. Right? Because God loves family. God loves family. And so he sent his son to reach out and to bring in sons and daughters to build a really, really large family for God. That is, in a sense, really the work of salvation. The work of salvation is pictured in Scripture as being adopted into a family and, as a consequence, receiving all of the rich heritage of that family. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. What is salvation? You believe in Jesus Christ and you are brought into the family of God. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're part of a family. You receive a heritage that went far back from your own birth. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And because we are children of God, just like Jesus called out to his father, Abba, Daddy, Father, the Spirit says, call out to the Father in the same way because you are sons, you are daughters, you are brothers, you are sisters. 1 John 3, verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And then John says, and such we are. John says, that's right, that's who we are. That's who we are. We are children of God. And maybe this morning you say, you know, I'm, I'm actually not sure. I'm not sure if that applies to me or not. You walked in here and you have an interest in God. And maybe even you know the gospel story. You know that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead. You know all those things. Maybe you were even around church and you've got believers in Jesus around you, but you've never said to yourself, yeah, but, but I know that that, is for me. I know that God is my father. Maybe there never came a point in time where you reached out to God as your heavenly father and you said, God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to pay the penalty of my sins to remove that debt because I was born outside your family. But because of the removal of that debt, I can be a part of your family. Maybe you've never cried out to God and said, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me into the family. I believe. I encourage you. Great time to do so. Beginning of a new semester fresh start. Examine your own heart. Do you know that you're part of the family of God? The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, not only is the debt of sin removed, but you become a son. You become a daughter. And God loves you just like he loves his son. That's how deeply he loves you. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, are you afraid? Remember your spiritual heritage. You are a part of the family of God. Called into God's family, and consequently you are called into the family business. Once you become a part of the family of God, there's a work that this family does, and it's a very specific work. Paul talks about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, for this, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul would go on in the book of Romans and say, actually part of my calling is to go out where Christ has never been named and to find sons and daughters. In fact, he would say in Galatians, uh, before I was formed in the womb, even from that point in time, God called me into the business of the family, which is grow a bigger family, right? That is what the family of God does. We go out and we find more sons and daughters because God loves a really, really, really big family. That's what God wants. That's the family business. Notice what Paul says here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ 
by the will of God. Now I ask you, why did Paul tell Timothy that he was an apostle? Timothy knew that, didn't he? But he knew it really well. We understand in the book of Galatians why Paul talks about his apostleship, right? He tells the Galatians, hey, I'm an apostle sent by the will of God, not through the agency of man. Nobody gave me this message. The reason that he tells the Galatians is because he's going to have to crack skulls, right? They're, they're wonky doctrinally, and he's just going to have to come in and bust them up. But now, 2 Timothy, Timothy is his disciple. He loves Timothy. Timothy loves him. But he reminds him, hey, I'm an apostle. Timothy, remember, God's hand is on my life. Because he brought me into his family, he gave me purpose and mission, and that is to grow the family of God. And what he is going to exhort Timothy is, he's going to say, Timothy, you share that same calling because you're part of the family of God. In fact, I think that's going to be one of the primary purposes of the entire book. Look in chapter 4, verse 5. He says, you, Timothy... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy, fulfill your ministry. And Timothy's ministry was different from Paul's. Paul's was to go out and to break new ground. He would leave Timothy behind to build up these churches so these churches would make disciples and go out and find more sons and daughters and be multiplying churches. But Timothy largely had a ministry of staying in one place. Paul's ministry was to go from place to place to place, but their ministries ultimately were a part of exactly the same calling, which is build a family for God. Right? Build a family for God. And Timothy, as you are fulfilling your calling, there are times when you are going to feel inadequate. You are going to feel unprepared. You are going to feel frightened. How will you press on in those moments? Timothy, remember your spiritual heritage. Look around you. Look around you. Right now, look around you. Literally, look around you. You are, you are not alone. Okay, you share a calling, but you are not alone. You're part of a a courageous family of faith. I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. The writer says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside also every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Chapter 11 has been an entire chapter about those who were not paralyzed by fear. Instead, they pressed on in faithfulness even when they were, even when they were, they were suffering. And now the writer says, now we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Does that mean that they're all looking down from heaven and watching everything we do? I don't think so. But it means that they have gone before us and they have testified that this is a battle by the power of the Spirit and in the community of God that we can win. With this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, it says, therefore, lay aside every encumbrance. Lay aside the sin that so easily trips us up. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author or the leader and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Writer says, look, there are those who have gone before. And if that's not enough, remember Jesus. He went before. Was he frightened? Look at the Garden of Gethsemane. There 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 was fear, but fear was conquered by faith. Consider him. You are not alone. Now, parents, do you remember when your children were, were really little 
and you would introduce a new food, right? And there would be a reaction of fear and resistance, right? They would pull back in fear. There was not faith. There was no trust, right? They just said, I don't know what they're feeding me now, right? And they would sit there, sometimes arms crossed, lips clenched, right? Wouldn't try the new food. So, so what did you do to encourage them to try that new food? Parents, what did you do? Remember? That's exactly right. Every parent knows this. You would take a bite yourself, right? You would go before and you would show them, this doesn't need to be a fearful thing. This won't kill you. Actually, it's wonderful. It's delicious. Mm, see, mm, 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 right? And you just, mm, 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 ah, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. You know, and I was thinking about this analogy and I realized this is a great analogy, but at some point it also, it kind of breaks down on me because when I think back, we fed our kids some really nasty stuff, right? And there were, there were moments when I actually kind of went, mm, no, you know, faked it and, and dumped it because it was really gross. I was looking online and I found this. This is, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's pureed steamed crabs. Yeah. So my metaphor kind of breaks down a little bit. My point is this. You're not alone. You're not alone. And you didn't get here on your own. We have followed others and we stand on the shoulders of others and there's a whole community of faith. We are not alone in this fearful venture. Last year, I read a a really good book by Malcolm Gladwell. It's called Outliers. And he looks at uh, people who did extraordinary things and had extraordinary success, all the way from Bill Gates to the Beatles. He's looking at these people, and he's, his thesis is this. You know, we see these people, and we say, well, they must just have an extraordinary talent that none of the rest of us have. And he said, that, that's kind of how we normally approach it. But then he argues, so that's not it at all. There are a lot of other factors that often are ignored that go into this person's success. And he wrote this. He said, people don't rise from nothing. The people who stand before kings may look like they did it all by themselves, but in fact, they are invariably the beneficiaries of hidden advantages and extraordinary opportunities and cultural legacies. The culture we belong to and the legacies passed down by our forebears shape the patterns of our achievement in ways we cannot begin to imagine. True. Give you a little insight into... um, my character and the things that I love and the things that I hate, in my opinion, the absolute worst form of entertainment is an award ceremony. <laughs> I just, man, those things, they just drive me crazy. And I remember kind of the moment where that was solidified for me it was a few years back. Uh, Tom Hanks won an award for best actor in uh, Apollo 13. And I will say, Tom Hanks is a great actor. He's one of my favorite actors. But Tom Hanks is up there. He was getting an award for portraying James Lovell, who was the astronaut, but the actor got the award and the astronaut didn't get the award. I'm like, there's just something wrong with that, right? So you're all, everybody's going, yay, you know, you're the best at pretending to be something you're not. Uh, I'm like, come on, really? I just, you know, I'm just not moved in that moment. However, I did think, though, there is one redeeming quality to award ceremonies, and it's this. You got this entire room filled with uh, phenomenally narcissistic people, but then once, once a year, they are forced to stop and say, okay. I didn't get here alone, right? I want to thank so-and-so, and 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 really long, boring, rambling speeches, but at least they're thanking somebody else, and they're acknowledging, I didn't get here alone, right? That's the point of Gladwell's book, is none of us got here alone. In fact, of all of those forces that he talks about that bring us to this place, you know the, the one that is most powerful? It's family. It's family, And maybe you come from a family where you say, you know, I didn't get carried along spiritually by my family, but now you do 
have a family. You are brought into the family of God. And as family, it is our responsibility to one another to challenge each other and to encourage one another to do phenomenally great things for the kingdom of God, to build a family for God and encourage and exhort. And maybe that's a literal family for you, parents or brothers or sisters or aunts or uncles, or maybe it's a mentor who loved you and poured his or her life into your life. Or maybe it's uh, books, missionary biographies have mentored me in major ways, or, or sermons, or just friends and peers. But all of those things are gifts from God, from the family of God, to pour into your life so that we help God build a family for himself, because that's what God is after. Will it be fearful and frightening? Absolutely. Now, you may have noticed uh, we, I titled the, the series this year Exponential, uh, and here's why. Here's where the title comes from. The church began in uh, AD 33, right? Day of Pentecost, roughly, and the day of its birth, there were 120 people who believed in Jesus, exploded, and had several thousand. So when Paul wrote 2 Timothy 68 AD, the church was in the thousands, right? It's beginning to spread out. By the end of the first century, There were tens of thousands who believed in Jesus. The family had grown to tens of thousands. By the end of the second century, hundreds of thousands. By the end of the third century, there were millions. By the end of the fourth century, there were tens of millions. And now the faith in Jesus Christ had actually become the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. So the question is this. How did faith in a Jewish carpenter who was crucified go from 120 people to take over the entire Roman Empire? Well, the book of 2 Timothy tells you how. Paul invested in Timothy's life. Paul Paul poured out his heart to Timothy. Paul loved Timothy. Paul taught Timothy. Paul taught Timothy how to love Jesus and how to love others into the family of Jesus. And he did it with Titus, and he did it with a few others. It's called discipleship. It's spiritual multiplication. It's one-on-one, it's one-on-two, it's one-on-five. This is, this is what, what Jesus said. He said, I'm, I'm going to build a kingdom. Gates of hell cannot prevail against it, but you know how I'm going to build it? I'm not just going to shout from the heavens. I'm just going to say, I just want to send you. Just do your work. Just fulfill your calling. Invest your life in the lives of others, little by little by little by little by little by little by little. One time I actually sat down and I, I did the math on the little by little. Okay, I did the math on it. So imagine this scenario. Imagine that this year I have the privilege of leading one person to Jesus Christ. And then I spend, spend time and emotional energy and money. I, do, I just pour into that person's life. And I, I help that person learn how to pray, how to study the word, how to feed themselves, how to grow, how to share their faith, how to catch a vision for spiritual multiplication and making disciples of all nations. I do, just do that with one person this next year. And at the end of this next year, I say, now you go. This is God's calling on your life. And that person goes and they begin the same process and I repeat it. Okay? So it's just the two of us. Just the two of us in year two. Here's how the math works. If we continue to repeat the process and assume nobody falls off, right? Everybody keeps doing it. That's my assumption. After 28 years, there will be 268 million followers of Jesus Christ, just from what we started. In 32 years, there'll be 4.29 billion followers of Jesus Christ, sons and daughters. In 33 years, there will be 8.59 billion followers of Jesus Christ, just because one of us started and just met with one and then met with one and met with one. That's how things uh, exponentially 
grow, right? So now imagine uh, you're not alone. I'm not alone. Imagine that every single one of us sitting right here said, yep, I get it. I get it now. I, I see Christ's vision for how he would build his kingdom. And so every one of us say, God, let me be that person. We get down on our, our knees and we say, God, give me someone. Let me, let me pour my life into someone. Let me see another son or daughter come into your family. Imagine that, that all of us did that together. Imagine that all of our churches in this community, just in College Station, caught that vision. It would only take a matter of a few years. Imagine if just the churches in the United States did that. Imagine if if the churches uh, begin to say, you know, this is our vision, and we're not going to just reach our community, but we're going to go into those places that are really, really difficult, where there's resistance to the gospel, and there is danger, but we won't be paralyzed by fear. In a generation, see a family of millions and millions and billions of people be brought into the kingdom for Jesus Christ. Is that frightening? Will it it take risks? Is there a great possibility that we will be rejected? Is there a possibility that some of us might even go and lose our lives, give our lives for the family of God? Yes, that's a possibility. That's a possibility. And fear will paralyze us. But remembering we're not in this alone. We stand in this rich history of spiritual heritage of men and women who loved God more than they loved their lives. And we say yes. That's our calling. Paul says to Timothy, remember your spiritual heritage. Second, is rekindle the fire of God's gift. Read with me again, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason, well, for what reason? Timothy, because you have this rich spiritual heritage, because you, you share this calling to make a family for God among all, this nation, all the nations now, for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, because God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. That word for kindle afresh is actually used only here in the New Testament, right? It's only one time. But you get a better sense of what it means if we go back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Genesis 45. It's used here. It says, Now when they told him, that is, when they told Jacob all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Right? What's happening here? Jacob was told that Joseph had been killed by wild animals, and so for, for decades he has been carrying this grief for his beloved son, and now he discovers Joseph is alive and his spirit comes back to life. The word literally means to cause to blaze again. He literally is to cause to blaze again. I think the best English synonym is encouragement because encouragement is a, it's a word, that comes, the root comes from a French word for the heart. To encourage means to place something into the heart, to place fire back into the heart. The heart is discouraged, right? Or the heart is, it's disheartened. And as a result, it, it, it's paralyzed. It's, it's up on the roof and it's laying flat and it can't move. And then, and then life is brought back in. There is encouragement. Cause it to blaze again. Paul says, Timothy, fan that into flames. What is it specifically? For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. What's the gift? Well, it says it's a gift that was in you through the laying on of my hands. I think he's talking about spiritual gifts, gifts of the Spirit. First Timothy chapter 4, 
parallel passage, Paul tells Timothy, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the council of the elders. That is, Paul was with the elders in this place, probably in Lystra or Derby, and they laid hands on Timothy, and Timothy received spiritual gifts early in the course of the history of the church. Apostles and prophets and others in spiritual authority would lay hands on people and they would receive the gifts of the Spirit to demonstrate the authority that was beginning to be placed in the church. As the church moved on, the moment that a believer trusted in Christ, they received the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit doesn't come empty-handed. And what he brings with him is gifts, powerful gifts. What is he talking about? He's talking about Timothy's spiritual gifts. Maybe it's teaching or leadership or administration or hospitality or mercy But what Paul is saying is this, Timothy, God has called you to do something that is risky, it is frightening, I get it, but as God has also adequately equipped you for this task. Now, fan it into flames. You've let it be quenched. But whatever God has called you to do, God has also equipped you to do, so fan it into flames, Timothy. Because you're adequate because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's what makes you adequate. So get up, Timothy, and act. Notice what he says here. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but power and love and discipline. In other words, when the spirit comes, the spirit doesn't come empty-handed. He comes bringing gifts, and the kind of gifts that the spirit gives aren't ones that produce fear. They're not ones that produce fear. And actually, I think fear is not the best translation here. So what he's talking about, in a sense, is timidity or cowardice. Fear is a natural reaction. Jesus was afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane. He did not want to go to the cross. It, It It produced fear in him, but it didn't paralyze him and make him unwilling or unable to obey the command of his heavenly father, right? So he's not talking about generic fear. What he's talking about is pulling back from the calling of God in your life. And Paul says, no, we are not of those who shrink back from God's calling on our lives. We are those who move forward in courage, right? We have courage or we have fire in our hearts that overcomes the fear, I found this quote this week, uh, I thought it was excellent, really right on point. It says this, true bravery can only happen in the face of fear. If you aren't afraid, then how can your actions be brave, right? What Paul is saying to Timothy is he's saying, be brave. He's not saying never feel the feeling of fear, right? That's ridiculous. He's saying in the face of your fear, don't be paralyzed, be brave. Because God has given you a calling. So stir it up, fan it into flames, because the Spirit of God doesn't bring paralyzing fear. The Spirit of God brings courage. In fact, he says the Spirit you have is a Spirit of power. A Spirit of power. what, What do we really need in our spiritual lives? We need power, right? We need power to say no to sin and yes to God. We need power to say no, I'm gonna say no to comfort and I'm gonna say yes to the risk. We need power to do so. And it is that same power we're told in Romans chapter 8 that actually raised Jesus out of the dead is the same power that dwells in you to fulfill God's calling in your life. You have received a spirit of power, a spirit of love. What do we fear when we're going out and we're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm called to bring in more sons and daughters in the family of God. What do we fear? Now, you know, when that opportunity comes to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make that spiritual deposit, what do we fear? We fear rejection, right? Or ridicule. They're going to think I'm an idiot. They're not going to want to be my friend any longer. We fear rejection. But perfect love casts out fear, John tells us. Perfect love casts out fear. Where do you get perfect love from? You get it from God. If you know, beyond a shadow of doubt, that God loves you and God approves of you unconditionally and perfectly for the rest of your life, 
So what? (laughs) Really. So what if one other person ridicules you? Because you've received that perfect love, then you can give. And a person ridicules, and you give more. The person mocks, and you give more. The person rejects you, and you give more. Why? Because you have perfect love. And perfect love doesn't run out. You've received a spirit of, of power and love. My translation says discipline. The better idea is um, a sound mind that is thinking rightly. You are in the midst of risky business, and there is persecution, and there is suffering. And you need to think rightly about this. And you need to press on in the midst of that and not be distracted and not be fearful. You need to think right. Power, love, right thinking, moving forward. Because this is God's calling on your life. This is God's calling on my life. This is God's calling on our lives. This is why the church exists. To make a family for God. So how do we apply this? Let me give you a few thoughts. As we close, first is this, uh, remember, remember, you're not alone, you are not alone. You, you, I think one of the great values of, of corporate worship is we walk in this room and we sing the same songs, hopefully in the same key sometimes, right? But we're all, we're all tuned one direction, right? We're not alone. You are not alone. Maybe this morning you feel alone and you never have actually had somebody pour into your life. That's why the church is here. I I need you to reach out. Let let me know. Let Zach know. Let us help you find someone who wants to and is looking for someone to pour their lives into. Maybe you've never had someone who helped disciple you and teach you to walk with Jesus or mentor you in life. You know what? If you look around you again, you're going to see young folks and you're going to see gray hair and you're going to see everything in between. And that means everybody has the opportunity to make disciples. Everybody has the opportunity to pour into others and that's why the church is here. So, remember, you're not alone, but if you're feeling alone, we can help. That's what the church is for. Second, rekindle. How do you put out a fire? You you pour water on it, right? Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Don't pour water on it. It may be be this morning that you're just not really getting this and you're not nothing's stirring in your heart and you're not feeling any any fire and it could be because I failed or it could be that there's some sin in your own heart that you need to confess. Because sin is like it's like water on the fire, right? It may be small, it may be large, but there may just be a barrier that you're not really able to listen to the Holy Spirit because his movement is quenched in your heart and you just need to take a moment before we leave and say, God forgive me. When the Spirit convicts, know this, the Spirit convicts us specifically. The Spirit doesn't come to you and say, you're a bad person, you can't do this, right? That's Satan, and you need to know it, that's Satan. The Spirit comes, the Spirit says, you, you lied. You, you, you took when you should have given. You did, you know, it's, it's very specific. And so you'll know you're hearing the voice of the Spirit if there's something specific, the Spirit's saying, deal with that, right? Rekindle. It may be that you need to confess. Uh, the other way that uh, you can put out a fire is you pour some water on it and you just pull the logs apart, right? Just pull them apart. One of the things that Satan will try to do in your life is he will try to isolate you from other believers. I want to exhort you, get plugged in. Hey, get plugged in the body of Christ. I'm sure we got some freshmen here, hey, right? You're, there you go. Thanks. I remember that. Just don't have to do it any longer. Um, you're going to shop for churches. You know, it's, oh, it sounds so crass, but that's what you do, right? You're going to shop around, and that's fine. There are a lot of really, really, really good churches here in this town. You're, you're blessed. 
Uh, but I would encourage you, don't shop too long. Right? Look around, find, find a church that, where you, you know they're teaching the word of God and you can plug into deep fellowship and you can find a place to serve. Right? But don't wait too long. Statistically speaking, uh, when students come to college from Christian homes and they wait longer than six weeks, statistically, they normally don't walk with the Lord the rest of their college career. Okay, the, the, the statistics are, are, are powerful. All right, six weeks, usually, if you don't actually just plug in and sink your roots deep and begin to have fellowship and serve within about six, seven weeks, kids from Christian homes just drift away. So I would tell you, uh, take five. Right? Don't, don't go more, right? Look around. Try, try several other churches. Maybe hit two on a Sunday morning so you can pack in several really good churches and then make a decision, this is where I'm going to be. At least for this year or the next two years, this is where I will be, right? Plug in and plug in deeply because Satan is going to try to isolate you. Uh, Third, uh, discover your calling, right? Rekindle the gift of God that is in you. God's spirit has gifted you, probably with multiple gifts. And you may not know what those are, but you know, there is, there's this point where, where your spiritual gifts and your talents and your passions and the needs of those around you intersect. And I will tell you, that is the place of greatest joy in life. And if you don't know where that place is, we actually we, we do a course periodically. It's called Discover Your Ministry. And if you can't wait till the next one is set up, then I can give you some stuff to read. But I would say this, just get busy. Right? And try things that sound interesting to you so you can have the Spirit fan that into flames for you. Third, take a risk. Church, come on, let's take a risk. Take a risk. If you haven't done anything risky in spiritually in months or years, come on. Stop that. That's silly. It's ridiculous. Church, come on, take a risk, right? Share your faith. Share your faith. This semester, share, share the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you be rejected. Yeah, but that's okay. Jesus loves you. Don't worry about it, right? It's going to happen. Take a risk. Share your faith, right? Take a risk. Maybe God has stirred in your heart in the past and said, you know, share your faith, but why don't you think about sharing your faith with somebody who's really, really different from you? Go to, go to a community that's unlike you and share your faith. Maybe God's saying, why don't you, why don't you take a trip overseas? You say, ah, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. Well, you know, our summer trips go in the summer. So I'm telling you now so that all those fears can be broken down between now and then, right? Maybe God's calling you to say, take a step of faith. Go outside of what's comfortable for you. Or maybe God's saying, I want to challenge you to give. Because really, God doesn't need uh, your money. Does he? No, he doesn't. He owns cattle on a thousand hills. He can sell a few, provide for the church. That's not what God needs. What God wants is your heart. And a lot of times our heart gets so attached to our, our money and our stuff. And God is saying, I want you to give. And you say, well, I can't give. I don't have enough to provide for my needs. Take a risk. Just a little risk. Right? A little risk. I'm not saying uh, you know, 10% or 20%. I'm saying just anything. Right? Let God stretch your faith. Maybe something else. You already know that the Spirit's saying, take a risk in this area. I'm saying, take a risk, church. That's where faith must be actualized, where we must be brave because we're at the edge of fear. And that's how the church will explode. One more. Raise up other sons and daughters. That's the mission of the church. I want to challenge you to begin to invest. Um, You saw one of the opportunities we divided up the, the names of international students among uh, all four campuses, and I think we have 65, just 65. Maybe uh, take one international student and bring that person into your house. I don't remember what the statistics are, but the majority of international students who come here and study in the U.S. never get to have a meal in a 
in a home, American home. <laughs> what lost opportunity, right? Once you adopt an international student, uh, families, adopt an Aggie, adopt another Aggie. I mean, you know, I know once they come, they, they do bring sons and daughters, and they're just like, all of a sudden, here we go. But so just start with one, and they will multiply, right? <laughs> bring them into your home. Opportunities, amazing. Students look for those opportunities to get into a family's home. Students look for opportunities to invest and share the gospel with your neighbor, your roommate, someone who's just a little bit behind you in the spiritual journey, or maybe somebody who's just with you, and you're going to invest in one another together to raise up sons and daughters. Get together with with some folks on your hall. If you're living in a dorm and say, you know, let's begin to pray for revival on our hall. Get down on your hands and your knees and say, God, do amazing, powerful, miraculous things around us. Or get together with another neighbor and say, you know, we've neglected our neighbors around us. We don't even know their names, but let's learn their names. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for a bit of revival in our neighborhood. God, let, let us see you do really kind of frightening, scary things that are right on the edge of risk, but miraculous things because that's what you've called us to. God, let us be those people together, right? Fear is the enemy of faith, but God's spirit is way, way, way more powerful, church. Let's, let's lean into that this year. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not be uh, those who shrink back, but instead, Father, we would be those who, who just who draw so deeply from the power of your spirit that we take, take on these tasks that, that seem frightening and we wonder, are we adequate? But we know that you are adequate, though we are not. I pray, Father, we would see miraculous things and hear miraculous and wonderful stories of men and women trusting in your son Jesus, children trusting in your son Jesus, and our youth trusting in your son Jesus, and not just trusting in him for eternal life, but getting a vision for their lives to build a family for God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so please feel free to email me all of your miraculous stories. (laughs) Guys, have a great week. See you next week.